you're looking at 1 Samuel 4. And uh, if you find yourself without a copy of God's Word today, feel free to shoot up your hand. We'll bring you one. Anybody need one? One right here in the, in the front. David, grab it. Thank you, David. David's going to grab that for you. So we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to look at the entire chapter today, but for now, I just want to read 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 11. So if you would uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines and killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons, Eli and Hophni, uh, the two sons of Eli, excuse me, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines. You will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have become, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there, there fell thirty thousand foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's pray. Lord, we pray like the writer of the hundred nineteenth Psalm. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. Amen. Praise you. Well, God is good, amen? amen. And according to 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? amen. amen. But... Although he casts the sins of the forgiven as far as the east is from the west, we need to understand that there are earthly ramifications for our sin. There are natural consequences that we have to deal with. And not just us, but those around us, right? If I'm an angry father and I take that out on my wife or my children, they have to deal with my sin. If I'm a prideful father and, and I, I live in arrogance, those around me are going to have to deal with that, right? And today we're going to see what happens when the cycle of sin is completed. If you would turn with me to James, 
James 14, or excuse me, James 1, verse 14. James 1, verse 14. There we go. James 1, verse 14. It's going to give us a picture of the life cycle of sin. Right? In verse 14, it says, But each one who is tempted, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, right? He's carried away and enticed by his own lust, right? He wants something and he gets carried away. And when that lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. He goes out and actually does what he's going to do. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And today we've reached the end of the sin cycle for Eli and his sons. Well, the first thing we're going to look at is I really want to dig down into verses 1 through 11. And there's a cycle there. There's, there's a progression, if you will, that we need to go through and to understand the gravity of what can and what will happen when there's unrepentant sin in the camp. Who is affected? In our families, in our churches, and in our nation. What are some of the effects? And what does that cycle look like for us today? Next, we'll take one final look at Eli, and we'll discover where he was at the end of his life. And finally, we're going to look at the result of personal sin on the family by spending a little time with Phineas' wife as she both gives birth and then succumbs to labor and dies. Sounds cheery, right? I gave you the cheery part earlier, 1 John 1. That's the sad part. So let's dive in, because I really want to look at this pattern there in verses 1 through 11. In verse 1, we start with the phrase, Thus, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And the word of Samuel brings to mind uh, Moses, right? When Moses was uh, saying, I don't want to go, Lord. I don't want to go talk to the Israelites. I'm slow of speech, blah, blah, blah. Right? God said, I will give you the words to speak, and you will speak my words to the people. And then when he, when he protested further, he brought his brother. He said, fine, I'll speak to you. You speak my words to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to the people. They become the words of God from Moses, right? So Samuel has now stepped into that role. The word of God comes to Samuel, and Samuel gives that to all of Israel. And we're, again, we're given a, a, a little word that tells us how much time has passed. And it's not a very accurate word. It just says now, right? Now, we don't know how much time has gone by since Samuel spoke to Eli and told him of his impending doom. But we do know that we are in Israel and things are about to get real, right? Because we read, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek. I got a handy-dandy little map for you here. You can pull that up. There we go. And I bought a laser pointer, and I forgot it in my office for the first service. And guess what? I forgot it in my office for this service, too. So if you look up on the, on the map here, you'll see that little blue rectangle there. That's Shiloh. That's where the ark is. Right? And the lightning bolt in the middle there, that's um, uh, Ebenezer, right? And that's where the, the Israelites are. And the, the bolt on the left is Aphek. And that's where the Philistines are. And then you see all the colors on there. That's actually the distribution of uh, the land. You know, when the, the Israelites went into the promised land, each tribe got a chunk of land. And so you see each tribe represented there. What you don't see, though, because of that, because of that coloration is, there's a huge mountain range that goes right down through, uh, right where Shiloh is there, and Ebenezer, and, and um, there's a big plain right there where Aphek is. It's nice and flat right there by the water there. And that's going to be important later. We'll go over that um, here in a second, right? Um, back in Judges, right, we've been bouncing back there. 
Um, the Israelites came in. They were supposed to take all the land. They didn't take all the land like they were supposed to. So God, um, uh, and then, you're never going to believe this, right? The Israelites start worshiping the gods of the land. Right? They start worshiping the, the Baals and the, the um, Moloch's and, and all of the Ashtaroth and all that. And um, this quite obviously angers God. So what he says is, I'm not going to remove these people from the land right away. I'm going to leave them there. And they're going to test the Israelites. And so they're going to be in a constant battle with these people, right? And if you turn to Judges 3, you can turn to Judges 3, we'll start in verse 1. Uh, we're going to get a little list of, of who's left in the land. So Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. So he's talking about the, the people that hadn't been part of the initial invasion. They're going to experience wars now and be taught by them. Only in order that the generation, uh, generations of the son of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon and from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Nebo Hamath. Yeah, I put that one up there because uh, <laughs> that would take a long time, finger spelling. <laughs> yeah. So these nations are the nations that surround Israel during the times of the, of the judges. And as we progress through judges, each one of these nations begins to be dealt with to the point where they won't mess with the Israelites anymore. Uh, by the time we get to where we are in 1 Samuel, there's only one nation left, and that's the Philistines. And they, they continually attack. Um, and, we, and we see judges uh, fighting back against the Philistines. Uh, one judge, his only claim to fame, his only little chunk in judges, uh, is Shamgar. Right? Remember Shamgar? And he killed 600 Philistines with an ox code. An ox code is like a, an eight-foot wooden pole with a metal spike on the end. Right? And the Bible tells us he killed 600 Philistines and saved the Israelites. That's all he is, Shamgar. Right? And then you, of course, remember Samson. Right, the guy with the beautiful hair, not me. The guy with the beautiful hair, right? And and he was strong, and and he confessed how he got his strength. So they shaved his head. He was captured by the Philistines, right? And his last act, um, they were in a, a temple, and the Philistines were gathered in there, and the lords of the Philistines were in there, and he prayed for strength, and he pushes the pillars down, and the building collapses, and kills all the Philistines and their leaders at that point, right? So we know the Philistines are there. Um, the reason I tell you all that is because it's routine. Right? These Philistines have been doing this for years. This was uh, nothing new to them. And therein lies the danger for the Israelites. And therein lies the danger for us as well. When, when tasks become routine, when we grow used to situations that, at, whether at work or at home or even at church, right? We're in danger of assuming that we can handle it by our own power. I was praying with a, a group of local pastors this week. And before we prayed, we were talking around the table and talking about different things going on. And I know you'll never believe it, a group of pastors that likes to talk. Right? <laughs> talking is fine, but getting us to stop is the challenge. But one pastor mentioned that the, the fact that something he has to watch out for is when he thinks he can handle something. When he thinks, oh, I've got this, I've got this. When we think we can handle a situation without God's guidance and assistance, 
We are in dangerous waters. When we set up battle lines and prepare to wage war with the day, are we stopping to talk to God first? First thing, when we get out of bed, before our feet hit the floor, are our prayers going up to God? God, guide me. God, protect me. God, lead me. On days like that, those are the days that I see God operating in my life. Those are the days that I see the fruit of spirit just pouring, the fruit of spirit just pouring out of me. But, and maybe it's just your simple old pastor up here, but you ever get to lunchtime? You go grab your lunch, you sit down, and you get ready to throw up a quick rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. And you realize you haven't talked to God all morning. You realize that you've been off to the races and you left the horse back in the stall tonight. That's what's happening for Israelites during Jeremiah. Right? The Philistines came up before they strapped their swords on and went marching out there. They lined themselves up. How did that work out for them? And we read the Philistines in verse 2. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. You can switch to the, the next slide there, Tyler. There you go. Thank you. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines and killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Stop. Pretty sure the Bible just said the Philistines were doing the work. Right? So why did the elders say the Lord has defeated us today? Let's take a quick look at Deuteronomy. Go back to Deuteronomy 28. Okay, Deuteronomy 28. And remember last week I told you when they came into the promised land, they painted those big rocks, they scratched the, the law of God into it, and the consequences for not obeying the law of God into those rocks, and they had a big altar. And then on either side of this big valley, they, they sat across from each other, different tribes, and they yelled back and forth the blessings and the curses of what would happen if they didn't follow God's law. That's what we're going to read about today. I've got a little bit more up there. I'm, I'm going to cut a little bit of this out. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 28. But um, Deuteronomy 28, we're going to go to verse 15. Uh, but it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. This is where we kind of get into the, the Dr. Seuss section here. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be your offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusions, uh, and rebuke in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fear and heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew, and they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you iron. Sounds like California. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And then verse 25, the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of the terror of all the kingdoms of the earth. 
Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to fight them away. So we see the elders had the right idea, right? God had fought against them. And the elders realized it, and they analyzed it, and they came to the right conclusion. So then they turn to, to God, they turn to sackcloth and ashes, and they, they repent, and they offer sacrifices, and they, they turn back and seek God's will, right? No. Look what they decided to do. Go back to verse 3. Let us take ourselves from Shiloh, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. I've confessed before, and I probably will again, that I have a weird brain, right? When I read things, I kind of see them like a movie in my head. And as I was reading this, I, was, I kind of transposed it with the movie that we watched Friday night, right? The No Time for Sergeants. And there was this uh, plowboy guy that was, wasn't very bright, very literal. Uh, and the protagonist was Sergeant King, who just wanted peace and quiet, right? And Sergeant King would tell him something, and, and the plowboy would start talking. Yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then all of a sudden, he'd just go off left field. And Sergeant King would go, Right? And that, that, that's how I envision this, right? I, I envision a, a godly person in the camp, and they come back and they just got blunt. And the elders say, Why is God fighting against us? And they're like, Yeah, why is God fighting against us? And they say, We should do something about that. He's like, Yes, yes, we should do something about that. And he reaches over for his sackcloth and for his ash, and then the guy says, We should go get the ark. And he goes, Right? What are you talking about? Why should we go get the ark? Just review what's happened really quick. The Israelites faced the challenge, they thought they had it, and they didn't see God's will. Right? So God gives them a lesson to show them that no, they most certainly do not have it. Their leaders recognize that lesson, and their answer is, hmm, God didn't show up on day one, so let's go get the ark and force him to show up on day two. Right? Because if the ark is there, he has to help us, right? I mean, that totally makes sense. The God that created the heavens and the earth with his voice is going to be bound to a little wooden box covered in metal that he created. Right? He's going to be bound and he's going to have to fight for us. That's, that's like me telling one of my kids they can't go on a field trip. Right? So they take a picture of me and then they go to the field trip and they've got a blank parental consent form and they have a picture of me. Right? They try to get on the bus, and the teacher's like, no, 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 and I get a phone. They're not going to be able to go on the field trip. They're going to get their phone taken away, and now they've got a big, goofy picture of their dad on, on their phone, right? It doesn't make sense. I'm not tied to that picture any more than God is tied to the ark. If we're going to be real, we all do that sometimes, don't we? We go stomping through life with a scripture verse is our phone screensaver and a t-shirt that says I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We march into the spiritual battlefield just as naked as a jaybird. Spiritual armor? I have a shirt of Hobby Lobby. I have a ball cap of godly one-liners. But what have you done to prepare? What time have you spent praying and reading God's word and being taught by the Holy Spirit? 
When, when, we, when we do that, when we walk out without having done any of that preparation, it's like we think we can just grab the Holy Spirit by a string and carry him around like a balloon. Right? Before we get too harsh on the Israelites, we need to look at the last line of verse 4. I mean, you all have somebody sitting here saying, don't do this. Strengthen your walk. Right? Stay with God. The Holy Spirit's not a balloon. Uh, don't wear shirts from Hobby Lobby. You know what I mean. Right? But look who's advising the Israelites. Verse 4. And two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Oh boy. Here we go. The Bible doesn't mention it, but I wonder if that triple pronged fourth guy and Tiny were there too, right? Not only that. The, the elders are there, and they're, they're taking stock of what's going on, and they're making completely wrong decisions, right? And it's, it's not working. But now they call in Phineas and Hophni, right? The only thing these two liked more than the good ribeye was looking important in front of the people. I mean, just think about how important they were carrying that ark into battle. And everyone was probably thinking about the times before when carrying the ark had been successful. Right? They remember Jericho? They marched around Jericho, the walls came up, right? Or, or how about when they crossed over the Jordan and the, the water backed up at the little town called Adam and they walked through on dry ground? The ark was there. This all makes sense. Phineas and Hockney, they thought of this as their big ticket time, right? The ticket's a big show. It's their time to shine. And to be fair, it was their time to shine, just not in the way that they hoped. You see, their corruption and their sin was about to be exposed. What they should have done is remind Israel that God is not in a box. They should have, they should have reminded them that they should have gone to God first before they had started anything else. They should have chastised the people for that. But they were too far gone. Remember, they were sons of the law. Worthless men. Men that didn't know the Lord. So, with all the pomp and circumstance that they could muster, they gathered, gathered the Levites, lifted the ark, and marched to the front line. And these are almost being swelled with pride. Watch the gleam in their eyes as you read verse 5. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does this noise of this great shout the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Meanwhile, Eli, back in Shiloh, verse 13 tells us his heart is trembling in the ark of God. But Hophni and Phinehas, boy, they're there on the front lines. They're getting all the kudos they can absorb. With you here, we can't lose. artificially try to bring God into something, right? All that worship, all that praise that should have been something pleasing to God. These, these men were crying out to God. It was perverted. It was wrong. They were crying out to a box. They might as well have gone down to, to Panda Express and eaten some orange chicken and grabbed one of those fortune cookies and popped it open and 
That's a little view of succeeding in every venture of fortune, right? Probably would have carried the same weight as what they were doing there. Probably more. Because the two rascals that were, were sitting next to the, the ark there were leading their people into a slaughter. It wasn't bad enough that they didn't stop the Israelites from using the ark as a good luck charm, but their damage had started so long before this. Remember, they, they didn't trust God to provide the, the right meat for them, so they chose how the meat was, was taken. They stole the fat. They treated the temple or the tabernacle like a brothel. Is it any wonder that Israel was in the state it was in with these two in charge? You see, at the beginning of this, the elders had the right idea. They absolutely should have gone to their history to find out why God was fighting against them. But rather than go back to all the great things that happened with the ark, what they should have done is gone back to the story of Ai. Remember Ai? It's the, it's the battle after Jericho. Right? They, they marched around Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And God said, don't touch anything in Jericho. That's mine. Don't touch it. And there was a guy named Achan. And he was walking through and he looked down and said, my wife would love that robe. Silver fell out of the pocket. Bar of gold. Very camel. Pay off my student loans. It's great. And he took it, he snuck it, he stuck it under his tent like God couldn't see through his tent, right? And so they, they go up after Jericho and they go to attack Ai. Now, after Jericho, I mean, the walls were like big enough you could run chariots side by side on the wall, right? They go to Ai, it's like a one camel town, right? It's, there's nothing there, it's tiny. They don't even send that many people up there. The spies say, ah, oh, my God, I can't send that much. And they go up there and they get whooped. Whooped. Beaten bad. And it's funny because Joshua's rolling around on the ground and the, the common thing that they did back then was they never cease. Why didn't you just leave us on the other side of the Jordan? Why? You know, God says, get up. Get up. Why is it you've fallen on your face? And he tells Joshua that Israel has sinned. And Joshua needs to deal with that sin before they can go back to Ai. And here we are again. There's sin in the camp. Right? Phineas and Hophni are, are living the life. And not the good one. It needs to be dealt with. And God will not fight with the Israelites while there is sin in the camp. And the same is true today. Your sin absolutely affects you personally. It affects your family and friends, for sure. But did you know that this sin, your sin actually affects this church as well? It shouldn't be any surprise to any of us. We are one body, right? We call each other brother and sister. With Christ as the head. If, if the toe gets an infection, it affects the rest of the body. If somebody gets jabbed in the eye, it affects the rest of the body. If somebody cuts their leg deep enough, it can kill the entire body. Unrepentant sin, clouding the church member's relationship with God, infecting their walk, gets introduced to the whole body before you know it. And things like that were happening to the church in, in Corinth, right? Paul sent a letter out to them, 1 Corinthians, a very strong letter. If you turn now, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, Paul has to address it because they won't. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, let me turn there too. 
1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, in, in the beginning, it says, it, it, it is actually reported there's immorality among you, and immorality of such kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Someone was sleeping with their, their stepmom. And it, what's even more shocking to him is nobody's saying anything about it. They just come bebopping in, holding hands, and sit down in the middle of church, and everybody's, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> they don't say anything. Nobody says anything. And he says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? A little sin. We'll see sin, sin, right? Leaven is sin. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, that is the Lord's Supper, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or a swindler. I even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul understood the necessity of removing sin from the body. That's why church discipline is, is so important. And it's not so that we can just go around kicking people out of the church. Oh, I didn't like what you said. You're out. Church discipline is there to, to bring people back to Christ. Church discipline is there so that if somebody comes walking in with their stepmom, God forbid, we would go to him and we would say, no, it's not right. Look at the Bible. Turned out well for the Corinthians, due in part to Paul's proclamation of God's will. But the Israelites didn't have Paul. They had Hophni and Phineas. And so we see the complete cycle. The Israelites faced the challenge, thought they had it under control, didn't seek God to know God's will. God gives them a lesson to show them that no, they don't have it under control. Their leaders recognize that God gave them that lesson, but failed to understand that it was caused by sin in the camp. The Israelites then use artificial help to secure God's help. And then having secured their Panda Express fortune cookie, the Israelites' worship was perverted. They shouted to the Lord, but they had no idea who they were shouting to. Which leads to the last step in the cycle. Verses 7 through 11. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, 
there were about 30, there fell on Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the Ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Cycle is complete. Sin has been purged from the camp. And the most terrible event that had ever happened in the history of this little nation of Israel has taken place. The ark, what the, the Israelites referred to as the seed of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, right, has been taken by the enemies. And re remember I told you when, when God gave that, that curse on Eli, he said, you're old and you're heavy. You're not going to see the, the totality of this curse. So I'm going to give you a sign. And when you see this sign happen, you know the rest of it's going to take place. And what was that sign? Both his sons would die on the same day. Eli and or Hophni and Phineas died. In a very public and grotesque manner, the sin of Eli and his family is on full display. For God would not protect his priests, his ark, which was a clear sign to Israel that he was displeased with that. And the day is not yet finished. We see continuing more quickly now. Uh, there's a man from Benjamin. He runs back. He tells uh, everybody what happened. They all start crying. Eli is sitting there waiting. He says, what happened? He says, uh, he says in verse 17, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate. And his neck was broken and he died, for he was holy and heavy. Thus he judged Israel for 40 years. Although it's a sad way for Eli to end, it also gives us one last beautiful picture of Eli. In this final verse of Eli's life, we get to see just how much he truly loved the Lord. And as this Benjaminite comes up with the axe on this great tree of a man, and he starts whacking away, and Israel's fled, 30,000 people dead, your sons are dead, the last whack. The one that drops that tree is the one that bears witness to the departure of the glory of the Lord and his people. The bittersweet goodbye. And it isn't the last. You see in verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was pregnant, about to give birth. And I, for time's sake, I'll, I'll, I'll shorten this for you, but she, she hears about the deaths, she hears about the ark of the Lord being taken and the stress of it causes her to go into to labor right away. And her pains come upon her, and come upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark was taken. See the pain that is caused by Phineas' sin. His arrogant and his sinful life has ended. Phineas' sons becomes an orphan at birth. And in another bittersweet moment, we're exposed to his wife's righteousness. She succumbs to the complications of a stress-induced labor. She died with the name Ichabod, meaning where is glory or no glory. Her final words, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. I would love to tell you that the sin of Eli's family stops there, but you remember the curse from God said it would be generational, right? His, and nobody would really age in his family. They would die before that happened, but even those that even got a little older, they would have to go to the priest to beg for bread or a piece of silver. 
Israel life would go on. The next week, one of my favorite stories to go over is, is chapters five and six. We're gonna have two chapters, so bring a lunch. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, we'll, we'll, might need a lunch today. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's an awesome story, I love that story. Um, but today is what we looked at, at, at what led up to the, the capture of the ark and the death of Eli's family. We need to understand that cycle that we witnessed. Right? We need to understand it, not because I'm worried about someone coming in and stealing our cross or our Bibles or our graphics computer or anything like that. But because we need to understand the danger that cycle represents to our lives, our families' lives, and our church's lives. Do we face challenges and fail to seek God's will? Do we think we have things under control? And I'm not just talking about big things like buying a house or confronting a boss. I'm talking about the day-to-day things, the little conversations that you don't think you need help with, the little temptations that I've got under control. Don't worry about that, God. Are you getting up every morning and asking God to use you, to guide you? And then are you spending time in God's word listening for what the Holy Spirit is teaching you? Step two, do you learn the lessons that God gives you? Or do we step out and do something without seeking God and then marvel when it fails? Right? Have you ever done that? You get in the middle of something and then you're like, God, please bless this. But you didn't even ask him about it at the beginning. And you're midway through doing whatever it is you're doing. Step three, is there an unrepentant sin in your life that is causing a, a disconnect between you and your relationship with God? Remember, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remove the leaven from your life so that your sanctification isn't hindered or slowed down. Step four, are we using artificial means to secure God's guidance in our life? Are we relying on our church attendance or our service at the church or anything else on the outside, our outside righteousness? Or are we praying and spending time in God's word to learn his good and perfect will? Step five is our worship pure. Are we worshiping together out of obligation? You know, I'm like, Pastor Link, you didn't call and ask me where I was. I better show up. Right? <laughs> or are we coming here hoping to gain something, right? Just need to pray harder and need to get that for Sanders. <laughs> are we cheerful givers of our time and of our money? Or do we grumble? Are we doing things with pure motivation, with pure motive? Finally, step six, have you suffered defeat? The curious thing about this defeat, and others I've witnessed in my own life, is often defeat is more loving than a victory. God could have given the Israelites victory in that battle. He could have protected Phineas and Hophni and the ark. He could have kept Eli from falling over. But what would that have done for any of them? If God had given them victory in the midst of all that was going wrong in Israel's relationship with him, he would have been signaling that he was good with what was going on. The same could be true for us. Have you suffered a defeat during a time of rebellion for the Lord? Did you receive a, a season of discipline from God? The Bible tells us that he disciplines those whom he loves. Take those defeats. Examine yourself. Examine your life of sin. 
Don't cover the, the gaping wound of sin with a Hobby Lobby t-shirt. But turn that wound over to the great physician and be clothed in his righteousness. If you're here today and you realize that the decision to follow Jesus has not been made and you can't even discern God's will because you don't even know how to start, now's the time. We're going we're gonna to pray, or I'm going to pray here, and then we're going to sing one last song, right? You want to come down and, and start that journey with Christ. Start that walk. Start looking for God's will in your life. Come on down. I'd love to share Jesus with you. You want to come down and pray? Just spend some time praying. Feel free. If you want me to pray with you, let me know. I'd love to. But I would challenge you this week to go back through those steps. Examine your life. Don't walk away from here thinking you have it under control. I guarantee you don't. And neither do I. Without God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your holy word. We thank you for the truth within this word, Lord. We thank you that as old as this book is, Lord, it still is applicable. It still applies to us, Lord. We pray now as we go our separate ways that we would... Uh, Think about your word, that we would seek your guidance, that we would examine ourselves, Lord, and that our walk with you would be complete. Lord, thank you again for everybody that you brought to us, Lord. I pray that you would be with those who couldn't be here. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.